It's exactly what we're here to do, to give God praise for what he's done. And my hope and my sincerest prayer uh, throughout the week and all the moments leading up to today have been for us to truly be able to gather for a moment through the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the scriptures that we look at, and be stirred and convicted once again by what he has done through Jesus. And so I don't know what brings you here today. I don't know where you are at this point in your life and the, the things that you may be carrying, the things that you may have as a weight upon your shoulders, but I pray that we could just set all of it aside and for the next few moments give full attention, full devotion, full focus to consider once again what has been done for us in Christ. Uh, and we know that that's only possible through his spirit and through his leading. So let's pray together for him to guide us accordingly. Father in heaven, we love you. And uh, these songs are for you. Uh, these praises are for you. This time in the word is for you. And God, we are so grateful that even in our devotion, even in our worship, even in our prayers, God, and in, in the ways in which we sing, the ways in which we can read and listen to the scriptures, God, you meet us in these moments with your Holy Spirit, and you stir us, and you awaken us, and you convict us, and you open our eyes to what it means to respond to what you have done. And so I pray, God, that the Spirit that you have gifted us, God, the Holy Spirit that that brings us to life, the Holy Spirit that brings in a greater understanding, God, would fill this place. God, that it would fill our hearts, our souls, and our minds. God, that you would lead us into a greater understanding of your presence, your grace, your gift, your mercy, that we could truly bring you the praise that you so richly deserve, not just for a moment, not just for a service, but with our very existence, our very lives. We thank you, Father, for Easter Sunday and everything that it means for every day for the rest of our lives. Be with us now, Father. And we pray all of this in the strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. All right, so about this time, three years ago, uh, every single one of us in some way, in some form or fashion, were having our understanding of personal space radically redefined. Right, And you, you all can remember that. April of 2020 uh, was when the pandemic had fully really began to make its way through this part of the world and in our country. And uh, we really had to re-understand how to interact, how to engage. Things were being shut down. And because so little was, was really known about the virus at that point in time, one of the only ways that we knew to try to keep each other safe uh, was through distance. Right? And so phrases like social distancing became a normal part of our dialogue and our regular interactions. And we were uh, extremely cautious in every arena of life to make sure that there was distance from one another. It's so much so that even for us here at this church, three years ago on Easter Sunday, we preached and sang from the rooftop so that you could drive in, and we had a drive-in Easter service so that you could stay in your cars and maintain distance from other people, right? That's where we were three years ago. Now look at us, right? Can we just say praise God for a moment, right? It's a little different today. Uh, I hope it's not lost on us, and I don't think it is because it's, it's not too far in the past, just three years, for us to see that, look, we're gathered in the same room, uh, in the same building, uh, cozied up next to each other on the same pew, 
And, and what we are finding and what I hope you sense to a certain degree this morning is the value of what it means to be near one another, right? The, the value of, of being close and sharing a level of proximity and that sacredness. It's, it really is pretty sacred. And, and so where we are now is we've kind of returned to the way things were prior to the pandemic, right? That, that what we all can recognize is that there is a certain um, natural disposition towards personal space, correct? Uh, we have this kind of personal bubble that we all try to maintain, and there are social expectations that you're going to respect that personal bubble of someone else. There's a certain healthy distance, and if you ever infringe upon someone's personal space, it typically sends off some form of an alarm Right, it makes somebody uncomfortable. It creates some level of social awkwardness. We all know what we're talking about, right? Right, you've been at the party with the guy that's like the uh, too close of a talker, right? And every time they step in, you step away and they never get the idea. It's like I keep moving away, but they just keep infringing upon your personal space. You think about going to the movies. You want the buffer seat, right? Like you don't want somebody sitting right next to you, even here at church. You're like, this is my pew. If somebody came and just sat right next to you, it'd be a little unsettling if you didn't know them, correct? We want this social space. And, and to really illustrate it, I think, more than anything, probably the most uh, tense social situation that really illustrates this is the elevator. Can I get an amen? Right? You want to you really weird somebody out? Step onto an elevator and go right next to them. And just don't say anything, right? But we all get in an elevated, crowded elevator. Everybody's personal space is infringed upon. Nobody knows what to do, so we all just stand there like this the whole time right? We have this personal space that we're constantly trying to protect, and, and that's the normal way of life. Now, it's interesting to think that that's actually kind of an inherent disposition that we carry. Uh, some research would suggest that the reason we have that is almost kind of a survival instinct, right? That there's something that, that actually genetically is, is sounded off within us that says when somebody gets close, you need to evaluate it and discern it, right, and protect yourself to a certain degree. And so there's a lot of reasons why that might be the case. But here's what I find interesting, is that even though that's your natural disposition, and you react that way to the rest of the world, the majority of the world, there is a small group of people, a small group of people in your life that you allow into that personal space, right? It's typically your family, right? It's going to be parents, it's going to be uh, children, it's going to be siblings, right? Just a small group of people that can come into that personal space without hesitation, without concern, right? And, and without any sort of awkwardness or, or, or discomfort, right? They can sit down next to you on the couch. They can come in for a hug or an embrace, and it's, it's actually welcomed. And what's interesting about this dynamic, in my opinion, is that it's not even just that we permit it, but that we actually crave it and need it. Right? And, and, I, and I want to illustrate this point. I want to kind of show you what it's like to actually crave it. I'm going to take a, a roundabout way to illustrate it. I'm going to show you a clip from a TV show here in a second. But before I do, to set the, the, sta the stage a little bit and kind of lay some groundwork, I just want to, I want to know who's in the audience today. i got to get a sense of your TV-watching habits for a moment, okay? So let's say it's Friday night. you got the opportunity to watch any show, show of your choice, okay? And you get 30 minutes to an hour, whatever it is. What are you going to watch? I'm curious. Show of hands. How many people out here, you're choosing like the crime drama? You're like, give me law and order. You know, give me that CSI. Okay, one of you. All right. Um, sorry, a couple. All right. How many of you, it's the documentary? I need something truthful. I need news. I need current events, a true story, true crime. Okay. How many of you, it's the sitcom? You need the laugh. 
at the end of the day. You need Parks and Rec, The Office, something along those lines. How many of you, it's the drama. You just need a good cry at the end of the day. Let's watch This Is Us, Parenthood, something like that. That's the guaranteed tearjerker every episode. How many of you, you're not watching a show, you're watching YouTube, right? Everybody under the age of 28 probably should be raising their hands, okay? All right, here's my point in doing this quick little survey. We all have our different TV show watching preferences, okay? So no judgment here, right? Just let's all be gracious to one another. But I must confess that it's in, if it's in our household, Jennifer and I typically, when we get that choice, we're going to watch something along the lines of reality TV, okay? That's, the, that's our choice. Don't judge us. But I will, I will admit we fully understand the irony that reality TV is anything but realistic. We get that. But we've always tended to kind of gravitate towards reality TV shows. And near the top of our list of one of our favorites is Survivor. Any Survivor fans out there? Thank you very much. All right. Survivor is, is a great show. Uh, if, if you haven't seen it, we're praying for you. And uh, we hope that that changes soon. If you haven't seen it, quick overview of the premise, right? Essentially what they do is they take 15 to 16 strangers. They take them to a completely remote place, typically a deserted island, some form of a beach. And they drop them there with literally nothing. Right? They give them like a bag of rice and a machete to build a shelter, and that's it. And they break them up into all these different tribes, these different teams, and then they give them a series of competitions that ultimately works itself out to being one of the most interesting social experiments that we've ever seen on TV. They have these competitions where they have to earn food and fire, and then ultimately if you lose some of these competitions, your tribe goes to what they call tribal council, and they vote a member out. And that's, that's how you get eliminated from the game. And that continues until it gets down to the final three. And those final three contestants then make an appeal to the rest of the folks that they voted out that now comprise the jury. And they make the argument why they outplayed, outlasted, outwitted everyone else. And that jury now then determines who is the sole survivor and they win a million dollars. Okay, that's the basic premise of the show. And so the reason I thought about this is because it's really interesting to watch how these contestants react to those extreme conditions. And I want you to imagine that for a moment. Okay, I want you to imagine uh, being taken out of everything you know that is comfortable, right? Being away from your house, uh, being away from your own bed, being away from your family, your friends, your colleagues, your work, your city, everything that's familiar, and being dropped in something that's completely foreign with a bunch of people you don't know, sleeping outside in very difficult elements, barely having any sort of food, and continually exhausting yourself through these competitions, right? What ends up happening in those elements is that you actually begin to crave nearness, right? Like you, you actually need it and you want it. Well, the producers of the show know this, they realize this, and so they've uh, interjected within the course of their season what they call the loved one visit. And, and so you're about, you know, halfway into this journey. The, the full journey typically takes 40 days. And so you're a little bit more than halfway into this journey. You're really tired and exhausted, and you just need some form of connection and nearness, and they'll bring a loved one to you. And you get a chance to see them just for a moment. And so I've got a clip uh, from one of the seasons of this moment, this loved one visit, uh, and it's kind of a shortened clip. It's about two minutes, but I want you to watch it, and here's what I want you to pay attention to. I want you to watch how the contestants react when they know that one of their loved ones is near. And I want you to see how quickly and how willingly they embrace that proximity and that nearness, okay? Let's watch the clip and get a check to look at it. You know, sometimes, even in a war like this, it's important to take a moment, lay down your weapons, and remind yourself what and who you are playing for. No way. What? No, no, no. 
Kim, here's your husband, Brian. <laughs> and your three kids. <laughs> Ben, yes, here's sir. your wife Kelly and your kids. Baby <laughs> guy. All right, Bobby, come on out. That's a hug. Sarah, does it get any better than that right there? All right, Tyson, let's get Rachel out here along with one of your kids. Come here. Come here. Oh, oh she's so beautiful. Come on out, Rach. Oh, I love you. Love you, too. Love you. Jeremy, you're ready. Let's do it. Val, come on out. Let's go! Bring the Collins. Let's go! <laughs> wow. You can do it. So, Jeremy, if you had a diary and you were going to write down what this moment is about, what would you write? I miss him so much. I think about him every day. I dream about him. And I, this is what I need. This is, this is the reason why I almost didn't play. And this is the reason why I'm playing. Isn't that great? I love that last guy. Let's go! You know, and they just come running like that. And even the way that he describes it. You know, he, he thinks about his family. And he says, the, these, these folks, these people, this family, they're the reason why I almost didn't come. And they're the reason that I'm here. And I, and I wanted to give you that picture. And I wanted you to try to connect with it on that level because what we see is that there are just a handful of people in our lives, the folks that we call husband, wife, son, daughter, mother, father, brother, sister, and we embrace that nearness in a way that actually ministers to our soul, right? Like, like there's something sacred about nearness. And we need it. And that clip shows you just a glimpse into the heart of humanity and how desperate we need it. And the reason I want you to have that image and the reason I want you to think about that this morning is because at the end of the day, that is the essence of the gospel. Right? That what we're going to celebrate and reflect upon today is that God, so rich in love for you, has come near. And what a gift that really is. Let's explore it. Turn to Romans chapter 10. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've been walking through Romans 9 and 10. Last week, we went through the first part of chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. But we've been working through these chapters after really going through the first eight chapters all of last year. And so just as a quick segue into chapter 10 and a reminder, when Paul finishes writing the end of chapter 9, he quotes Isaiah and he references that everyone that believes will never be put to shame. And it is that reference towards belief that serves as a catalyst for chapter 10. That, that becomes Paul's focus here in chapter 10. What does it mean to believe? 
What does it mean to have this faith? Right? And so what you're going to have here is a beautiful exploration into belief. And so even if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, where we're going to be today in chapter 10 is one of the most perfect passages for Easter because it ultimately summarizes what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Why should we respond to Easter Sunday at all? And Paul gives us a beautiful and an eloquent explanation of it here in chapter 10. We're going to be reading verses 5 through 13 together this morning. Follow along with me in your text. It says, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, church. Amen? You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, here's what's happening uh, in chapter 10. Uh, what you find at the end of verse 4, or really throughout verse 4, is that Paul has made a reference both to the law and to believing, right? Essentially, the tension that has existed throughout the letter is the idea that you can find righteousness through works by following the law. That's what his fellow Jews typically believed and what they had been aspiring to, but that now Christ has changed all that. So in chapter 10, verse 4, Paul gives this really beautiful summary statement where he says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that righteousness comes to all those who believe. And as we talked about last week, that word culmination can actually be translated as end. And what he is saying is that this idea that you need to obtain righteousness through works, by obedience to the law, by all this doing, that mindset has ended with Christ. That because Christ has come, it is all about belief. And so verse 4 has all of that packed into it. And so now in verses 5 through 8, what Paul does he continues with this theme and the same practice that he was doing continually throughout chapter 9 is he brings in Old Testament scriptures to further illustrate that point, right? This tension between a righteousness that comes through works versus a righteousness that comes through faith. And so he talks about Moses, right? Verse 5, he says, even Moses says about the law, right? How does he say it in verse 5? The righteousness that comes by the law. So now Paul is explaining the mindset that says you can obtain righteousness through works. And he quotes Leviticus 18.5, right? Leviticus 18.5, a very short quote, very simple and a shallow understanding of the, of, of the law, but essentially what it says is that those who do these things will live by them. And the emphasis in that verse of Leviticus 18.5 is on the doing, right? You will do these things and you will live by them. And so he's saying that that's the mindset of those who are going to live with the righteousness by the law. But then he compares this more shallow and simple understanding that's found in Leviticus to what Moses also says in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Right? So he continues. He says the righteousness that is by faith says something very different. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 30. Now, if you're like me, if you read this portion of chapter 10 and you're just reading 5 through 8, it, it reads confusing to me. Uh, every time I read it, I'm like, what? are we really talking about here? What is Paul's 
real point. And part of the reason it's somewhat confusing is because he's quoting Deuteronomy 30, but he's injecting uh, his interpretation of the gospel alongside it and within it. And he's even changed a term or two along the way. And so what really helps me get a greater understanding of what Paul is really trying to convey and what I want to do with us today is I want to go back and read Deuteronomy 30 together so that we can see what this passage is really referring to uh, that Paul is, is referencing here with Moses, okay? So you can flip if you want. We're going to have it on the screens. You can also just camp out there in chapter 10. But back in Deuteronomy 30, here's what we find, okay? Now, again, context is important. As I've said throughout our journey through Romans, whenever Paul is referring to an Old Testament scripture, he knows that they're going to probably be aware of the surrounding context. And so at this point in time, in the book of Deuteronomy, the full law has been given to God's people, right? So this is more than just the Ten Commandments. It's like all of it. It's like all the weird stuff, like don't boil a goat in its mother's milk, don't shave your sideburns, all these things, okay? And, and you can imagine, after hearing that level of detail and that much from the law, the people of Israel are going, how in the world are we going to do all this? Like, this is a lot, to figure out how are we going to truly be faithful and obedient to all these things. And Moses is speaking to that question and to that concern. And that's what we find in Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. Let's read this together. He says, Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you. It is not beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, Who will ascend to heaven and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we have to obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth, in your heart, so that you may obey it. I love this, okay? So let's break this down. One of the first things that Moses does here, that Paul is referring to, is that sentiment that after hearing the law and this question of all that they're gonna do, Moses says, this isn't too difficult. It's not beyond your reach. And I can't help but wonder how many of us might feel that way today. Or have at least felt that way at some point in our lives. Right, then when you thought about what is it that's gonna bring fulfillment, what is it that's gonna bring meaning, significance, purpose, when you thought about what does it mean to believe in God, to follow God, that there have been seasons, moments, if not today, where you have thought this is too difficult. I can't do it. I'm too imperfect. I'm too broken. I have too much of a past. Or I don't want to sacrifice this. I don't want to give up that. I don't want to belong to that group or whatever it is. And for whatever reason, whatever you've gone through, you have arrived at moments and places where you have felt like God is beyond your reach. Is that you today? Right? Part of what we see is that Paul is saying with the words of Moses is that this is not beyond your reach. This isn't too difficult for you, right? And so the way that he begins to explain that, the way in which he tries to bring some context to that is this reference to ascending to the heaven, or in the Deuteronomy passage, he says, going out to the sea. Notice that in Romans chapter 10, Paul actually changes that terminology. He replaces the word sea for the abyss, okay? And this is where he begins to infuse the elements of the gospel, Right? Essentially, in Deuteronomy, he's saying, hey, this isn't too hard. You don't have to try to figure out how to get to heaven or who are you going to send up to heaven to figure out righteousness and then come back, proclaim it so that you could obey it. You don't have to travel across the far side of the sea to figure out how do we become righteous? How do we do all these things so that we can proclaim it and obey it? That's not what is required of you. And so Paul takes that message from Moses and he brings in the gospel. 
And notice how he does it. He says, you don't need to ask yourself, who can ascend into heaven because Christ has come down? You don't need to ask yourself, who can descend into the depths because Christ has actually been raised up? It's a really remarkable statement, right? Part of what we're seeing is that we didn't have to figure out how do we get to heaven. God brought heaven down to us. And when Jesus took on flesh and he walked among us, he didn't just stop at the earthly existence. He actually went into the grave and then was resurrected. And so Paul is accentuating that element of what Jesus has done, that element of the gospel. And in so doing, he has highlighted and accentuated one of the most unique, distinctive qualities of the Christian faith. And I want to make sure that we don't miss this, right? Because here's what every other set of beliefs has in common. Every other set of beliefs, whatever they may be, right? You want, you want to embrace a more secular worldview where you want to eliminate God and just try to figure it out all on your own, whatever that looks like. Or maybe you want to embrace a religious worldview. It doesn't matter if it's Islam, Hinduism, right? It doesn't matter if it's Buddhism, all of them. Here's what they have in common. At the end of the day, it is a story that says, here's how you get to God. Here are the five pillars Here are the five pillars of faith. Here's what you have to do to break the cycle of reincarnation so that you can one day experience nirvana. Here's how you eliminate passions and suffering so that you can achieve enlightenment. You step out of the religious sphere, right? Here's how you find meaning and fulfillment. It's by the way in which you just discover your own truth. It's the way in which you just live your most unique self. Whatever set of beliefs it is, the story is always how do you get to God or how do you find fulfillment? What makes Christianity Unlike any other set of beliefs, it is not about how do you get to God, it is God has come to you. And that's what Paul has just brought to the forefront by referring to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Right? And he brings that in in such eloquence, in such beauty, and he comes with this incredible message, it is near. It's not beyond your reach, it's near. And to articulate that nearness, he brings in the terminology of heart, and mouth, right? And that's the really interesting way in which we begin to see Paul transition back in Romans chapter 10. He now builds off of that quote from Deuteronomy 30 so that he can incorporate this language of heart and mouth. And so as he transitions, right, he goes from verses five through eight where he has this comparison between Leviticus 18.5, which is essentially, here's the shallow understanding of the law. Just do things, right? Just do it, and that's how you're gonna attain righteousness, Here's the more complete version, Deuteronomy 30, that's going to say it's not just about your external doing of things, but it's about what you believe internally. It's about faith. And that faith is best seen and demonstrated by what you believe in your heart and what you confess with your mouth. And so with that being declared, Paul transitions to this beautiful, eloquent verse, several verses really, that help capture the spirit of Easter. Right? What does he say? about all those things? What do we get to discover about our heart and our mouth? Well, as we consider where this is leading, part of what I want us to make sure that we understand is a lot of what Martha covered in the children's sermon. You guys ever sit in the children's message and you're like, man, that's a really good point. I need to write that one down. Like, I feel that way all the time. But here's the truth of it, right? Heart and mouth are very intimately connected. Correct? Like, I mean, you see Jesus say this in the Gospels, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That more often than not, what we say is a reflection of what we believe. And so let me ask you this morning, what have your words been saying? 
Like if you were just to evaluate the way in which you speak in your day-to-day life, what are you talking about? What words are you using? And how do those words, how do those sentences, how do those phrases reveal what is going on within your heart? We need to ask ourselves that question because the two are very intimately connected. But as we saw earlier in the children's message, we also know that there are ways in which we can separate those two. We know that there are ways in which we can say one thing with our mouth and believe something else with our heart. Right? That we can say all the right things, do all the right things, pre- present all the right things, but deep within, it's not really what we believe. So we can deceive one another with our words, can't we? Right? We can do our best to, to give a certain image, to say certain things, but you know what? We can't, we can't deceive God. He knows what's going on within our hearts. Right? And so the two are intimately connected. And I want you to evaluate. Right? What is it that you're saying? What is it that you're believing? How are your heart and your mouth so intertwined to reveal your confession of faith and what you believe? And so with that being said, and that intimacy established, here's where Paul brings in the essence of the gospel. Right? That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Amen? That's it. That's the gospel. Jesus is Lord because God has raised him from the dead. Right now, what most uh, scholars believe is that what we've just read in this collection of verses is an insight to the earliest kind of confessional nature of the church. Right, so the Jews, they would have these passages of scripture like Deuteronomy 6. We've talked about that before, the Shema where they would recite it in public. They'd gather together in the synagogue and they would recite this part. They would confess it to one another. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? And they would recite it. And so given that as a bit of a background and a context, as the early church began to gather together, the way in which that they would gather and worship is they would often offer up a level of confession about what they believe. And most scholars believe that what Paul has just referenced is an insight to that confession that the church would gather around this one statement, Jesus is Lord. Can I tell you as I was reading that and studying that, how refreshing that was? Right, because here, here to me is what's so powerful about that. Right, this is how they identified one another. This is how they established a sense of community, was by that declaration. Right, so before churches were buildings and institutions, right, before we had programs, and events, and membership classes, and websites, and logos, and marketing, and branding, literally all the different ways that we identify ourselves as a community of faith before any of that existed, what they would do is they would gather together in the marketplace, in the temple, in their homes, and they would know they were brothers and sisters by saying to one another, Jesus is Lord. That was it. That's what it means to be the church. Nothing else, right? We become brothers and sisters by understanding the lordship of Jesus Christ. There are so many times where, yes, within the church, myself included, we get so distracted from what it really means to follow the gospel. We get fixated on certain doctrinal issues. We war with other denominations that do things differently. We get caught up with politics and all these other things going on in the world. And let me just tell you, at the end of the day, the primary identity of the church is by us coming together and declaring in each other's presence, Jesus is Lord. 
Is he the Lord of your life? Amen. Right, whoever that was. He's like, yeah, absolutely. Train a child in the way they should go. Is he? If you put other things on that throne, here's the question that Easter forces us to consider. And again, the essence of the gospel. Why is he Lord? What makes you confess that with your mouth? The reason we confess that is because we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Do you? Right, is it, is it just a story? Like I've prayed so hard that this is not just another Easter service. And whether you've been in church your whole life or this is your first time, whether you've been wounded by the church and you're skeptical or you're like, all in and this is where you are five days a week, whatever it is, wherever you are on the spectrum today, I've prayed so hard that more than anything else, we would encounter the power of God through that truth to believe in resurrected life, right? Because what, what took place was that God took on flesh, brought heaven down to fully reveal himself. Right, fully reveal his compassion, fully reveal his mercy and everything. But what we saw was the ultimate expression of love and sacrifice when he was willing to be betrayed, beaten, bloodied, and battered. And he was nailed to the cross. He was nailed to the cross. Nails pierced through his wrist and through his feet. A spear stabbed into his side. He was broken and beaten and bloodied and battered for you. Right, because what the scriptures teach is that all the godlessness and wickedness that exists in the world, that exists in our lives, all those things that you and I know that we fail at, all of our imperfections, all of our, all of our mistakes, all of our failures, our tendency to rebel against God, to go our own way and to say, I don't need you in my life, to go in our own path, to do all those different things, that way of living is deserving of death to turn your back on your creator is a penalty worthy of death. And Jesus comes and says, I will die the death that you deserve. I will take on such suffering and such pain. And what we see is that the penalty that brings you and me, that brings us peace, was upon his shoulders and by his wounds were healed. So he was nailed to the cross for each and every one of us. And yet what's so remarkable about it is that he did that not just so you could be forgiven. It was so much more than just so that you could find grace and mercy for your mistakes. What Jesus was doing in that moment was confronting the one enemy, the one force, that none of us can overcome. He came to confront death. And so when he breathed his last and his body was laid in the tomb, despair. Right, those that followed him, their souls were downcast. They were overwhelmed with sorrow and once again it felt like God was out of reach. He was distant. He was no more. 
He felt beyond their reach once again. They were hopeless because death had won again. And so let me be very clear, church. We aren't talking about that story. We aren't talking about how they laid him in the tomb. We're not talking about how he was betrayed, beaten, and bloodied, and battered. We're not talking about Friday unless we had Sunday. Right? And a lot of times we live our life that way, like Friday was good, but Sunday is coming. And I'm here to tell you this morning, Sunday isn't coming, it's here. Right, that on that third day, the women went to the tomb, the stone was rolled away, and they stepped inside, and they heard the words of the angel say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, he is risen. Do you believe it? Death has been defeated. And it wasn't some story. It's not like they just kind of concocted this idea in their mind to say, well, this will show him. We'll just say he was alive. We just say that he was resurrected. No, he appeared to people. The scriptures tell us that for more than 40 days, he appeared to more than 500 people. And you know what he said? He said, see my scars, touch my side. He ate with them. He broke bread with them. And their eyes were open and their hearts were set ablaze. And the essence of Christianity was born. A simple message, Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Jesus is Lord. And that message went from town to town and village to village and has existed from generation to generation and it is what we proclaim today so that now on Easter Sunday around the world, millions of people are gathering in different cultures and different settings and they're declaring to one another, he is risen. Death has been defeated. That is the essence of the gospel. Death doesn't win. Believe it in your heart. And when you believe it, you can't help but see Jesus as Lord. And here's what happens when those two things come together and we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, then we're saved. (laughs) And that's not just some church term. Right, like when did you pray the prayer? When did you walk down the aisle? When did you get baptized? Well, I got saved on December 7th. You know, like that's, that's, it's so much more. That word means rescued. He's come to rescue you. He's come to rescue you from having to try so hard, trying to find fulfillment and meaning and all these other things. He's come to rescue you from all your mistakes, all your, all your failures, all your shortcomings. He's come to rescue you from death. How amazing is that? Have you ever asked yourself why? Why did he do it? Well, it's, it's actually pretty remarkable, and yet it's also pretty simple. Love. The Bible tells us very clearly, God is love. This is what love does. Love does not stay at a distance. It comes near. The word for near that's used there in the Hebrew in Deuteronomy means the closest proximity of intimacy to an object. Right? It's, it's a nearness that means you can see and touch and speak. And isn't that exactly what God did? That when he took on flesh and he walked amongst the disciples and the followers for the first time, unlike any other time in human history, people could see God, speak with God, 
and touch God in ways that they never had because God had come near. And that's true for you and me, right? Though it is different, that through the Holy Spirit, when we believe this in our heart and we confess it with our mouth, there is a nearness that takes place where we can speak with God, we can see God, we can be touched by God in ways that go beyond our understanding and our comprehension. He is drawn near to you because he loves you. Nothing else in this world matters more than that. God has come near. How have you responded? <laughs> the passage here in uh, Romans ends pretty simply, and this is how we'll close. Right? What it tells us is that all those who call on him will be saved. Right? That the Lord richly blesses those who call on him. So how do you respond to this incredible message of Easter Sunday? How do you respond to the fact that the tomb is empty? How do you respond to the fact that God took on flesh and walked among us and came near? You call out to him. It's one of the reasons I loved that clip. Every single person, once they knew their loved one was there, they called out, come here, come close and they embrace them. Is that what you're doing with your life? Are you keeping God at a distance? Are you embracing the sacredness that we discover when he has been brought near so that he can minister to your heart and through the overflow of your heart, your mouth can't help but speak and your life can't help but live this truth that Jesus is Lord. Call upon him, church. Every single day, cry out to him and he comes to you experience all that he has to offer. Let us call upon the one who saves. Let us call out to the one who is greater than anyone else than we have ever seen. Let us call out to the one that death couldn't hold. Call out to the one who has silenced the boast of sin in grave. Call out to the one who has no rival, no equal, Call out to the one who has the name that is above all names, a beautiful name, a wonderful name, a powerful name. Call out to your King Jesus. He is not beyond your reach. He is near. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a joy to behold. What a truth to know. God, we confess so many times our words do not align with this truth. We acknowledge in your presence, God, that so many moments our hearts do not submit to this truth. But today, God, on Easter Sunday, in the midst of everything that we may be carrying, in the midst of everything that we may have done, in the midst of everything that may have led us astray, God, we come to you again. And we are so grateful to know that death does not win. We are so grateful to have a hope, a living hope that allows us to find such victory. And so I pray for every heart that is gathered here today, God, that we would truly believe within us the power of resurrected life. God, that you would be the only thing that sits upon the throne. Help us to quit running after all the meaningless, worthless stuff. 
can find the incredible, joyful courage that comes when we truly believe and know these things. God, I pray for anyone in this room who's never had that moment to call upon you, who's never fully understood the grace and the hope that you offer. Pray that you speak to them now. God, show them how to pray. Show them how to respond. Help them call out to you and receive you. God, for those of us in this room that have been seeking to do that for quite some time, be it short or long, young or old, help us to call out to you. Help us to have a renewed sense of commitment and conviction to know that you have truly conquered the grave. To hear the good news of what the angel says, he is not here, he is risen. And let us make you the Lord of our life. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us to the point that you would come near and hold us close. Thank you for not being beyond our reach. We give you our hearts. We give you our praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.